You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because you can only listen to the same song on repeat so many times. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller. And this is episode 36, Toil and Trouble. That was the perfect evil witch laugh. Like that was it was, great. That was my, my kids really enjoy that. Good. Good. Your old dog too. <laughs> All right, listeners. Welcome to our spooky Halloween episode. That's all I got here. That's all I got. I was really expecting you to run with that a little more, Cass, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> So before we get into the the dark and spooky things we're talking about this week, uh, do we have any anything to announce? Any any great news? Or Cass, you just you just won something. I did. I do have good news. This um, this I, it happened very much surprisingly to me in that it arrived in the mail. I won the Webster Award, which is given by Raven Con, which is my my local hometown con for Outstanding Achievement in Genre Writing for a Virginia author, which I am. So, I feel very pleased about that. I'm very happy. It would have been given out at the con, but it's 2020. So, not so much. So, they've, like, known about (laughs) this for six months and only told you now. (laughs) I'm not really sure. I think they were probably deciding what they were going to do and how they were going to handle it. And then eventually the guy was like, you know what, I'm just going to surprise her and I'm going to mail her this trophy. So I emailed him like, was I supposed to? <laughs> was this a mistake? Which I was, because it had my name on it and everything. But I was still just like, you know, it's that imposter syndrome thing. I was like, surely this is a mistake. <laughs> Look, no, no. Well deserved. Well deserved. Not a mistake Officially, at all. an award winning. You novel. are an award winning novelist. There you go. And I'm very, I'm very happy. It's a great con. I, I love going to that con, so it, it means a lot to me to get that it's award It's like the only con that my agent keeps telling me I need to do, so at some point, so I need shy. to do it. It's 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 been on my list, but like, you know, going places hasn't exactly been well, a yeah, priority of late. But... Come, come hang out on my turf. It'd be awesome. Because, I mean, it's, it used to be, well, it's it, it originated in Richmond, and then it went to Williamsburg for a few years, and then... This year it was going to be back in Richmond, and it will be back in Richmond whenever it next can happen. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, so yeah, come hang out. We can go do exciting things. It's my stomping hey, grounds. I'd be good. I'd be good. I'd be for it. What else? Um, as when when, when this, this comes, comes out, out, People the City, my twelfth novel, will have just hit the hit the road and hopefully we'll be in the hot little hands of so many happy readers i would hope i would hope please please get it in your hands please pre-order now <laughs> i mean <laughs> but when you're listening to this you can't pre-order you can just order but order it all order you can order post order you can post order by the you post acquire. indeed you can order it and have it come to your house in the mail it and all 11 other books that i've written 
And then <laughs> shortly after this, I will be screaming about the next book because literally less than 100 days between the two books coming out, which is madness. But that's that's the life I signed up for is madness. So <laughs> so you're like, oh, good. This book's out. I can finally stop listening to Marshall screaming about people to see. And I will nope. immediately switch gears to screaming about the Lost Revolution. <laughs> I, I sit in awe and wonder of your ability to make things happen on a schedule. <laughs> it's my own particular form of madness that I've been able to capture and harness and put to and use for good. <laughs> I think is pretty much what that what that is. I mean, that's that's the that's the secret of the magic right there. <laughs> I like it. I'm grateful for it because it gives us fun things Yay. to read. Yes. And what else? Do you have news, Rowena? I got nothing. 2020 is just a big morass of, of nothing right now for me. So I think you are very much not alone in that. I feel like I've seen a lot of authors being like, I don't know what's happened to the last eight yep. months, but apparently it's evaporated. Yep. Just... I'm just, yep, over here keeping kids and chickens and cats alive and building a goat pen. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's, you know. That's that's good stuff that you're doing there. So. Yeah, you know, got the little farm going. It's a good time. <laughs> you were you were ready for everything to fall apart and to, to live. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, this was just all in the works well before we knew. You're not going anywhere anyway. Okay, so today we are talking about witches and witchcraft. Is that correct? Do I have yes. that right? Yes. yes. You have that right. Excellent. That is our 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 spooky and and perhaps not always that spooky um, topic for our Halloween episode is is witches. So what what is a witch anyway? That's one of those things that can be really weird and fascinating to define because I think it especially in the context of fantasy writing and secondary world world building it ties so closely into what your rules of magic are. And if it's like, is that just the, a name for a woman who does magic where magic is a normal thing that people do, or is it, uh, is it something else that's tied to different rules of magic? It's something I've thought about a lot. Um, and it's a full disclaimer here. Hi, I'm a pagan who practices modern witchcraft in ways. So there's that, color on these things but when it comes to fictional witches and how they're used in stories to me the difference is a connotative one in how they relate to society and it seems like a witch has some kind of inherently transgressive mm. element whether that is because they are in a world that doesn't acknowledge magic or has a religious objection to magic or there's a gender differential to me, the difference in, in our English language between witch and you know, mage or sorcerer or some other term for a magic user is that transgressive element. It may not necessarily be illegal. It may not be forbidden, but it's out of the norm. It's, it's a little off the beaten path. It is not in the usual course and accepted events. I would agree with that. And I think that the only exceptions I can think of to that within the context of fantasy writing or when people very deliberately took the term and made it mainstream and, and they knew that they were doing it 
Like they knew I'm creating a society in which we use a witch in this way. But I think it takes a pretty big on-ramp to get there because we do have that understanding of witch, meaning there is something that is intentionally in some way countering societal norms. That it is, there are deliberate choices there that a, a witch makes, um, that a a sorcerer or a mage is working within a system, a witch is working perhaps outside or on the margins of a system in some way. Which is part of why I found the way it's used in the Harry Potter novels so strange because it's, it's used as just the distaff word for wizard. Like it's, you know, it's just the, the female word within their world. Like there's no, there is no sense of, of them being outside the norm within the wizarding world. Yeah, I think there the, the, that element is that they are of a secret right. world. You know, it is itself a separate thing from the rest of society. But yeah, it doesn't have the same connotation within that set of magic users. Yeah, and it was, I, I mean, it seems like a very deliberate choice that that was what was, what was done. Um, though it, it is interesting that when you are going to find a complement word for wizard for the feminine gender that what you end up with is a word that typically has a very different connotation. So it's kind of, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, I suppose you could have done sorceress or something like that, but even that has a different connotation than wizard. Yeah, like, enchantress, enchantress is there. There's a different, I feel like wizard has a relatively neutral connotation and there are just different, any female turn on it has a different connotation, whether it's witch is kind of evil, sorceress is kind of, you know, perhaps removed or evil enchantress has a kind of sexy element to it. Is that just me? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. No, I think of sorceress and, and enchantress as having that sort of like slightly sexy. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. You've enchanted me. You've ensorcelled me. Yes. I've been ensorcelled by, yes. Was it magic or was it her eyes? I don't know. There's, there's a transgressive element there too, but I think it's much more wrapped up with specifically the gender use of magic as opposed to the witch. I think has a connotation of gives no fucks like i'm gonna do what i'm gonna do and y'all can get on board or not because i'm gonna i'm gonna be what i am i think that's that's it's it's really interesting to peel those words apart though and decide what to use and and if you're going to include magic in your world that is a thing you come up against almost immediately is what do i call my magic users what terminology do i use and figuring out Am I going to embrace the connotations? Am I going to push back against them? Am I going to try to normalize them? Is a big question. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that when you're going to, if you're going to have any kind of witch, any kind of use of that concept in second world fantasy, like you have to define the magical system pretty quickly because is a witch someone who is using magic when no one else is or when very few other people are? Or is a witch someone who is using a different form of magic? or is using a form of magic that is outside of a very rule-based or regulatory system for magic. You know, what what exactly is it that makes it transgressive about what your witches and your world do? Um, because you can certainly have magic users who all have different moral codes or ethical compasses for how they use magic. I mean, there's, it's not like you only have, you know, you have magic, therefore everyone is functioning the same using magic. Like, no, you can do all kinds of different things with that. It is, especially if you have 
if your rules of magic have a lot of different circles to them, that there's different ways you can do magic, and therefore some of those are more transgressive than others, and then how you define what you call your different forms of magic users can really be... You can make some interesting choices, and again, you should be making choices rather than presumptions in in what you're having them be called. I've so just recently, I've been I've been binging the Magicians. I don't know if either of you watched that show or not. Cass clearly has. <laughs> I do. I love it. It's one of those things I could not get through the books, but I have loved the TV. I, I am very much enjoying the show so far that I've been watching, and it's. If you are, since Rowena is not familiar with it and listeners may not be familiar with it, um, one of the, I haven't read the books, but I was on a panel with Lev Grossman once, and one of the things he said on the panel was when he first wrote the books, like the first draft that sold, it was actually like Quentin and the other, we're going to Hogwarts, and then when they go to the Magical Land, it was Narnia, and then like, Legal was like, you can't do that. <laughs> it basically started off as like cross portal. Yeah, fanfic. it was. It was a, like the way he described it was like he was doing a uh, stop fortyian thing, but with, but with the Narnia books and the Harry Potter books, and legal was like, please do not do that. So he, those things are not public domain. So he. <laughs> And they are litigious. Yeah, so so he did the rewrite of where the school is Breakbills and then the magical land is Fillory. But one of of the themes, at least in the show, is that there's plenty of people who don't get into Breakbills but still can do magic. And nine times out of ten, when you get kicked out of Breakbills or don't get into Breakbills, they then erase your memory of that ever happening in the first place. But sometimes that doesn't take or go right. And then those people are like, but magic exists and form their little things. And so what I find interesting is the students at, at Breakbills are magicians. And the stu- people who are in the outside doing their own little thing are hedge witches. Which... Mm-hmm. I love that term. Hashtag goal is to be a hedge witch, honestly. <laughs> it's like, not necessarily in the, the magician sort of way, but just like that term. I just love it. It's great. I'd love to be some Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's like magic plus cottagecore. Like. <laughs> like, she lives on the edge of town. It's weird, but we go to her for remedies. Like. <laughs> and they work. Yeah, and, and I think that that's a really good point, though, Marshall, with the idea of like, there's a power structure and witches are outside of it because they often because they choose to be. And in this case, it sounds like maybe you choose to be, maybe you don't choose to be. But I think often witches are choosing to not integrate themselves with whatever power structure exists. You know, you have the king has a magician, but the witch lives outside of town in her cabin and could give no fucks. Or like in um, in Discworld, the, the variation there between wizards and witches is largely gendered, although in equal rights, we do see a female wizard. And, like, the way they use magic, the way they think about magic is wildly different. And Pratchett says some fantastic things about that in, I think it's in Lords and Ladies, but he talks about the differences between, like, old wizards, young wizards, old witches, and young witches, and how they think about magic. But one of the big structural differences is that the wizards have a school. They have the university. They have the unseen university. And to be a wizard, you go to wizard school. Whereas with the witches, it gets handed down to you on sort of an apprentice basis, which you mostly get by 
turning up at a witch's door and saying, you're going to teach me and, <laughs> and refusing to go away and just being tenacious enough that you get taught. And so that sort of like learning structure is very different in the discworld forms of magic as well. Yeah, I feel like there is, and not that other forms of magic users can't do this, but I feel like there is a generational element to talking about witches mm-hmm. and a community element. Even though I, th- I think I, th- I think of witches as being very independent, there is still this element of being part of a larger, perhaps always present, but very real community. And that's where the knowledge is stored. That's where you're getting things from, is from this intergenerational um, group, coven, if we want to call it that, if that's, you know, part of part of the, the witchy, the witchy um, terminology, vernacular. Coven is a good word. I'm, I'm all for the word coven. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. But like, I mean, I think you're right. Like there is usually that sense of like, okay, that, you know, the lady who lives out in the swamp and does weird things. That's our lady who lives in the swamp and does weird things. <laughs> even if, even if like, yes, yes, she's shunned. Yes, she's, you know, kept out there. It, it is sort of like, like, I can make fun of my cousin, but you can't sort of thing. <laughs> they are part of the community, even in being outside the community. And there is that sort of acceptance of like, oh, even in a system where you have like a more formalized magic system, where it's like, these are the things you can do with magic, according to the magic school. There's always this like, but what if I want to do this? And the magic school is like, oh no, that's not a thing you can do. And then, and then there's that lady out in the swamp is like, actually, <laughs> <laughs> the truth is, you can't. It's not going to be fun, but you can. I think that becomes an interesting place too to talk about like the intersection of magic and yeah. power. And to me, like these schools of wizardry, is sort of like. Well, if you have even a modicum of talent, if you have the innate ability in some fashion, the school will teach you certain things. Whereas the witch to me feels like something that's like, if you don't got it, you don't got it. And you're probably going to blow yourself up or poison yourself or otherwise come to a very sticky end if you simply don't have the power. Like you have to have, like there's a, it both creates and engenders a certain amount of respect for that inherent individual sense of of power, of ability. And even if they are in a community, it is not structured in the same way. There's not like the hierarchy that you see in other forms. They might come together for a communal purpose. They might come together for fellowship. But as once again, as Pratchett says, the natural number of a coven is one. (laughs) Because which is like, that to me indicates a kind of single-mindedness. Even if it is a single-mindedness that may perhaps occasionally sort of maybe align with somebody else's single-mindedness. <laughs> well, and I think that that also speaks to how a witch fits into the larger society and the larger culture, because I do think of witches typically as, yes, being out in the swamp or being on the outskirts or being by themselves. And part of that is that they aren't ingratiating themselves to whatever power structure exists. So they are not beholden to that power structure um, they aren't get, they probably aren't getting anything from that power structure except for those rare instances where they kind of break protocol and go to the witch. Like you've got the like Macbeth moment where <laughs> you know he's he's the one speaking out. They're not like they're not like showing up to him like we'd like to peddle you services. Like no, they're like uh, <laughs> show up to us. I guess if you really have to. Um, 
but you know that's they don't work for anybody and that has both mm-hmm. the benefit of that independence and also you know the drawback of there's a lot of societal power that you forfeit if you're going to go totally on your own so they kind of typically are going to have like the societal like outsider status but then again they don't owe anybody anything one of the things that gets talked about a lot whenever you're building any magic system is is the idea of cost of magic and and i think in specifically when we're depicting witches or witchcraft is is a point where we make that cost of magic a lot more explicit and a lot more karmic than we necessarily do in other forms like in, in a lot of other stuff just like if you use magic like you're just gonna get worn out or you can only do this but it's it's in witchcraft that there's almost a intelligence behind the cost that's put into you know you want this to happen fine but there will be a consequence and it's more it is more consequence than cost it lives like somewhere in in the, the nebula between like chemistry like if this then that that's what's going to happen if you put these elements together and like the fey bargain right yeah. the, the you might be giving up something you don't even know about i feel like witchcraft lives somewhere in between those concepts And the cost is often, too, I think, related to the natural world. You know, I make my potion or whatever out of these things. I need these elements to craft a spell. There is something physical that is needed to then transmute into magical power. That's not universal to all functions of witchcraft and fiction, but it is a common, I think, theme. Yeah, and I think that we can hit a lot of those common themes that, like, show up as the sort of, like, trappings of witchcraft that have been used across a lot of fantasy fiction um, that get pulled from sort of our cultural understanding of witchcraft. Um, one that I like kind of wrote down to like, write about, like, you know, we've, we've got, we've got the pointy hat, right? Like, is there something that witches do to physically mark themselves as hi, I'm a witch. And this is just a funny fun fact, but I actually discovered recently the pointy hat thing that actually was a historical hat style that hung out longer in rural areas worn by like older women. So basically in like early 18th century um, caricatures, it's, it's a caricature for like old rural lady. And this gets translated into witch by nature of that like old ladies living by themselves out in the country kind of have this connotation of maybe they, maybe they, maybe they know more than they're letting on. They're independent. They're like kind of hedge witchy in a way. Um, and I just thought that was so interesting. Like that wasn't even something that was originally designated to mean witch. It was really designated to mean old lady. Who's like a country bumpkin basically. That is so fascinating to me because it, it makes it seem like a hundred years from now, the thing you'd use to designate a witch would be like the dueling banjos theme because <laughs> yes <laughs> be- i was thinking of the red hat society yes like- yes but i was thinking i was thinking of just something That's that funny. like is iconic in representing you're in you're you're out in rural country now right and that's you know that is just so you know the the sonic equivalent of that it is it is not not to our current ears 
quite as spooky as <laughs> other aural signals, perhaps. But who knows? Who knows what the future may hold? Who knows which symbols will last and change over over time? <laughs> over time. But, you know, I, I don't know that many fantasy fiction writers put a pointy hat on their witches in their second world. Not that there's anything wrong with that. You can certainly take a trope and run with it. It seems to be a thing you only would do if you're... <laughs> if you... If you're doing like a deliberate satire kind of thing right. at this point. If you're doing that wink and that nod. You know, but do you physically mark witches in some way? Do you have them marking themselves and saying, Hi, this is what I am, this is this is what I do? I feel like it shows up a lot in the skin in one way or another, and across a lot of different fantasy novels. Whether that is intentional or unintentional, you know, whether it is a birthmark or a tattoo that you choose to get. I feel like it shows up in that kind of indelible, inescapable marking. Um, perhaps like the Ur example of this might be Elphaba, uh, you know, the green skin that marks her out. But then I'm also thinking about Susan Dennard's Witchlands and the witch marks that they have in that. I think it, I think it more shows up in that than necessarily in an article of clothing in, in more recent fantasy fiction. So less of a choice and more of a... Which is also, I mean, kind of related to the, you know, old, you know, Puritan versions of witchcraft in which there would be a, a mark on a witch. Mm-hmm. That a witch would have a mark somewhere on her that marks her as a witch. Which means I am screwed because... Me I'm, too. I'm looking at me and I'm like, I am covered in yeah. <laughs> I have them everywhere. They would roll up my sleeve a quarter inch and be witch. like, oh, well, here we go. Time to, time to throw her in the lake. Made compact with the devil and he has placed his mark upon you actually you wouldn't even have to roll up my sleeve i have a few on my hands like yeah you, no, there's one there's one there's i'm I, yeah puritans would have let's be real i wouldn't have made it to 35 with the puritans they would have hanged me long ago which really makes you ask some questions about their skincare regimen that they were you know <laughs> that I, most yeah. of them were, were so so free of marking i mean I, I guess they were pretty covered up they weren't getting like sun freckles and stuff but seriously seriously guys very lame very lame (laughs) pity that poor person with vitiligo who you know (laughs) right but there's other things too like there's the idea of the 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 extra nipple Mm -hmm. sometimes or the rumor that Anne Boleyn had an extra finger like physical deformity sometimes often goes along with that accusation of something otherworldly about a person do they have extra fingers? That could be a neat choice. Is like maybe in your world, witches always have six fingers, and because it helps with the magic or something. Maybe you need, you need that many yeah, to you need to, to, to do all the all the hand gestures. That'd be a cool choice. That'd all the magic is in that extra toe. It's just yeah. <laughs> it's just all there. You got it, or you don't. Thinking of the um, the title of this, the the toil and trouble. I always think of the cauldron, too, as something that, like, is just indelibly associated with the witch. Um, Which is funny in a way because it's a very specific action, right? Like, you are brewing a thing. And so it's like, that's a choice of what kind of magic and what form magic is taking there. The the potion itself is always a sort of a fascinating methodology of magic. Because it's the thing where... Like, if the witch is giving you a potion, they're giving you an extra layer of choice. 
They're like, okay, mm-hmm. I've done this thing that you asked. Here you go. But. <laughs> do with it what you will. <laughs> do with it what you will. <laughs> like, it, it, let me tell you, it's not going to work out the way you want it to. But here you go. And you you can still walk away at this point or not. Do you know what does that so well is, and you can tell I'm a parent of small children, is um, Brave. Brave? <laughs> yes, it does that so well. I watched it yes. a couple of days ago, and the witch in that is fantastic because she does. She shows up and she's like, no, no, I'm not doing this. There's too many unsatisfied yes, customers. I'm a woodcarver. <laughs> but it does. It gives that extra level. You're exactly right. Like, it gives that extra level between the witch and the effect like this is still you that's what it goes back to what you were saying before marshall about the cost and and that are you willing to bear the cost of this haha <laughs> fair because in phrase yeah i mean that was the thing with that witch she's just really into bears and you know i know it, i really enjoyed on that that it's like there's this i can do one thing i do it really well <laughs> well but that's it <laughs> is it that that's the only thing she can do or that's just what she's really into <laughs> I, you know it's never really clarified but because i always way, read it it's just like you're, that's you're her answer bears. for everything <laughs> just <laughs> what can you do? i, I want this just bear. throw a bear I, at it i can turn you into a bear like that that should solve what <laughs> it is sort of like the molotov cocktail thing it's like what the molotov cocktail that it's a molotov cocktail plot device <laughs> I had a problem, and I turned into a bear, <laughs> and now I have. And a then different... I had a different problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is the plot of yes. that movie. <laughs> I thought my problem was having to be married off to a suitor, but now my mom's a bear and has a different, different problem. problem. And even the prequel, right? I thought my problem was having to share my kingdom with my brothers. But now I'm a bear. Now I'm a bear. <laughs> I, like it. I mean, she oh really gives you some real perspective, you know? I totally was thinking um, about something that's just gone from my head. <laughs> we had started out on content. We had. That's where and we started just, with this, this yeah. thread. To, to wind it back that direction, it's, it's a little what I was saying before about like that chemistry element. And, and it sort of relates to alchemy, too, in that way that the idea that there are there are recipes and there are magical substances perhaps that you can use, I think is an interesting thing to play with as well. And like, does everyone have access to these things and only witches know how to use it? Or is there still something that you need in the witch themselves that makes the potion magical? Like it's 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 a it's an interesting thing you can play with in, in your building of how it well, works. Well it's very physical, isn't it? Like the idea of actually like physically mixing ingredients together in a physical cauldron, perhaps physically heating it, like that's all, it's it's not like an academic form of magic that kind of exists in the ether. Like it is in your hands, in front of you, you're physically going through a process to create it. And it's kind of domestic in a way too. Like it, it puts it very squarely in a kind of domestic sphere that this is a this is a kitchen project you have yeah. to have your your you know your your hearth and your kitchen utensils to cut up your eye of newt or whatever um and i think that that's sort of an interesting thing too that adds to the frequently gendered element of witches that it's it's something that takes place within not only the home but within you know like the kitchen the hearth the kind of like typically 
this is the like female gendered area and it's taking that gendered area and like subverting it to a completely different purpose. It's also something that takes time and effort. It's not just waving a wand to make something happen, um, which sometimes has overlap. You know, Lisa has witches with wands and, and there's other magic users with wands as well. There's a Venn diagram there. But the, the cauldron and the potion making is an effort. It is a process. It takes time and awareness of, I add this ingredient in this order. And this is making me really wish that I could watch a Great British Bake Off in a witch world. I want magical GBBO now. <laughs> I love it. I think that'd be fun. Someone write me that story. <laughs> this has become another episode where we pitch a story for somebody else to write because yes. we just want to read it. Like, please entertain us with these ideas we have but don't have time to write ourselves. Free prompts. Come on down actually be a great like collection like you could do a collection of that of like if cat valenti can write a book that is eurovision in space somebody can write magical great british bake-off with potions i think so <laughs> i like it i like it listener out there you know it's you you feel it in your soul you know <laughs> this is calling to you make Cass happy <laughs> make all of us happy so I feel like we proved in the episode um, with Elsa a few weeks ago that we could talk about familiars like all day, oh gosh, but I feel like we have to come back to it because witches and their familiars is one of my favorite witchy tropes, honestly. I love a black cat. I love anything, really. What I love about the black cat trope is like, if you are someone who has ever owned a black cat, they're like... I'm not going to say they're the least spooky cat because I think I think male orange cats are just so dumb. Yes. Bless them. I yes. love them so much. I will much always take an orange cat. they tabby. can't be spooky. But like but like black cats are usually so sweet. Like they're they're so little gentle little kitties and it's like who would ever think this is a sign of evil or something? Like this cat's awesome. It just hangs around and chills. I had for 13 years a black fluff ball monstrosity. I don't know what he was. He was like part I don't know, ragdoll, part Maine Coon, probably. He weighed about 19 pounds. And he was scared of everything. He was scared of everything up to and including my hair dryer. And it was just like, how could anyone think that this cat is a sign of evil? He's just the gentlest, sweetest little goober. And Whoever came up with that trope kept waking up in the middle of the night and walking across the room and tripping over the cat. There is that. There is, my, my cat was a bit of a stalker, though. He would watch you while you slept. And when I had guests over, they would sometimes wake to just see eyes staring <laughs> down at them. So maybe it was something I mean, maybe, like maybe that. Maybe that's how black cats can just kind of like disappear into the shadows until all of a sudden you're on the stairs and they're trying to kill you because that's just what cats do. True. I do think there's a big overlap between like the associated femininity of witches and the associated femininity of cats. As opposed, like, and it's a weird cultural thing, but like, we think of cats as female and we think of dogs as male for some reason, generically. And I feel like there's overlap there. I feel like there is a, a something, some wavelength in common with that transgressive element. Cats, much like dogs, you know, even if they're sweet and affectionate, they're still going to do their own thing. They, they don't care about yeah, your rules. They're very independent. They're like, I'm, I'm a part of this household because I live here. But I do not subscribe to the hierarchy that you are placing upon me. <laughs> I think other, like, 
less common but still frequent witch familiars fall into similar categories like crows, often get associated with witches as well, and ravens and the corvidae, which are the smartest birds, and the birds that don't give a fuck what you want, but if you're good to them, they will reward you. I thought there's that commonality sort of too. And I think it's fun to think about in a second world fantasy, like what are other animals that could work as familiars, especially if because you can play with it a little bit more, you know, you know, you could have spiders that are intelligent and could serve as familiars, or you could have magical animals that are familiars. And I think it's just kind of a fun thing to play with that if you wanted to take that that trope, which I love because of the idea of, of sharing consciousness or transferring and like having that element as a plot device is just fun, you know, but yeah, you can have, you know, wolves or a moose or, you know, whatever, <clears throat> whatever works for your world. Seals. I'm going to share that in a, a in a uh, synopsis for a future novel that I've got to write, I do have a character who is the squirrel mage. I've always wanted a... That'd be dangerous. Those things are everywhere. Exactly his point. (laughs) (laughs) Concerning. Because they're everywhere, so he's everywhere. But I like that, though, right? And I think that's also what works with, like, crows. Like... Like mm-hmm. the whole like Maleficent with the crow, like the crow can get anywhere. I don't know how those little critters that were also living like on the mountain with her, like little pig face things. I don't know how they were like searching for the princess because th- you're going to spot them. They stand out like a sore thumb, but that crow, <laughs> that crow can go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's what you need in familiar is something that can just be unobtrusive and be anywhere and then report back. Or do sneaky little things. Yeah. Or still just be pleasant to have around the house. like Right. That's the thing. It's like it doesn't have to be, you know, sneaky and, and, and suspicious. Like it can be like, I need a cat to keep me company and, you know, get things for me off of high shelves that I don't want to reach. It's true, though. You never see dog familiars. You never see like... You never see a little Jack Russell Terrier who's, who's, who's so familiar. And don't you want to now, now that I've said it? <laughs> I just kind of imagine the Jack Russell Terrier is familiar, like, just jumping, you know, like they do. Like, I want to do it. I'll go. I'll go. No, I'll do it. No, don't have, don't have the cat do it. Oh, boing. 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 Alice Hoffman's Practical Magic series, as it has expanded through time, um, the original was Practical Magic, and then she wrote a prequel rules of magic set in the 60s and then she's now written another prequel set back even further back in time in, in the 17th century but i was thinking through that and like familiars is a thing in that and there's black cats and crows are really common and the i think that there's a wolf in the early one in the, the 17th century one there is one dog familiar but it is the familiar to the only male witch of the line I don't, know. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it's it's an interesting just sort of thing to think about. Like, hmm. I wonder why that choice got made. So I enjoy all of the like traditional Halloween witchy tropes because they're fun. Um, but I mean, there's there's witchiness in non pointy hat cultures and places from history too. Um, and I know I have some favorites, but do you guys have any like favorite witchy inspirations from from non pointy hat? Which culture? I do. I have a few. 
um, and they're from, from pretty far back in, in cultural history. I like Circe and Medea, who have some like sorceress enchantress and the language has changed enough over time that it's a little hard to clearly distinguish them, but they do have that wiki feel, that transgressive feel. Medea particularly uses potions. Circe has, you know, she just blood animals and that's great, that's awesome. I, I love that for her. And she hangs out on an um, island by herself. Yeah, she's on an island by herself. By herself. Yeah. <laughs> And so I, I love them for that. And then I was also thinking about Morgan Le Fay is one of my favorite all-time characters. And I think she is fascinating in how that is a character that if you go through all of Arthuriana, which would take you a while, um, she starts off sort of value neutral or even positive as, as an assistant to Arthur. And then as time goes by and, and as society gets less friendly to transgressive women in general, Morgan Le Fay becomes more and more of a straight-up villain. She's sort of a chaos agent for a while who just has a very fuck-around-and-find-out attitude. And then she becomes a straight-up villain. And then in the last 34 years, she's been sort of reclaimed for witchcraft and for women as, as a positive figure in a lot of ways. And so I find that transition pretty interesting. Listener's cast has just picked up her cat. <laughs> yes, my familiar came and pulled into my lap while I was talking. Then he made a noise, which I don't know if the mayor has been picked up the mic. But he's an Abyssinian. He's not a black cat. He's a very sweet Abyssinian who was tangling himself. And my headphones were awesome. You're great, dude. You're the best. So the thing that comes to mind for me a lot of the times when we're talking about like witchcraft and other cultures is the way magic in in latin american magical realism is often portrayed um because that is a lot i mean it does sort of skirt the line of like this is our magic and this is you know how we do things that like is the magic real or not or is this just you know local folklore but it definitely has a sense of being that same sort of sense of like this is this is the magic of the kitchen this is what we you know this is what we will cook up and you know, like you take this that I made for you and you put it under your pillow and this will happen or you hang this over your door or you bury this in the yard. Like there is that it is the magic of indirectness that we, you did this thing and did this thing actually cause the, the thing you want to happen? Maybe, maybe not. Or maybe that's just, you know, maybe you were just, you know, putting it into the universe and and, and it happened. But even still, you know. We're still going to hang the garlic by the door and we're still going to, you know, we're still going to grind the mole and eat the mole. So, you know, you might as well also do magic while you're in there. There's a lot of modern witchcraft. It's like, I choose to believe this yeah. happened for these reasons. Maybe it's not true, but I'm going to keep doing it just in case I am right. <laughs> the one that I love is the Baba Yaga figure. And it might be only because she lives in a house with chicken legs, which is just the most fantastic thing so I've baller. ever heard. I mean, goals, right? Like, live in a house in the woods on chicken legs that just stands up and moves around whenever you need it to. Hardcore goals. Um, but I love that in most of the stories and, and kind of folklore, there's a magic element, but it's also that she's just clever and she just, she figures things out and she's a step ahead. And so she has this sort of like, you know, inserting magic in on things, but also just anticipation. And I, you know, I know the chess moves before you make them. So I'm going to set myself up to be right where I need to be. And I just, I really enjoy that about, 
about that particular witchy figure. And she rides around in uh, a mortar and yes. pestle, yes. which I think is neat, and connects sort of back to that like cauldron idea and, and physicality and yes. magic idea. Isn't it like one one of the the myths around her is that like if if she passes over you in her mortar and pestle flying around, that pregnant women miscarry. I don't remember that one, but that I could like I be, yes. That. I feel like I heard that as part of it, that, like, that was one of the things that might happen if Balayaga is flying around at night. I mean, it It seems like that would be, you know, the kind of thing that she would pull. And I enjoy that it's a mortar and pestle instead of a broom, because it seems more comfortable, Yeah, really. You yeah. know, it's got a little yeah. seat, you know, you can kind of just, like, sit in there instead of, like, brooms seem uncomfortable. Having a balance. Brooms are another one of those things. It's like, again, unless you're doing something that's very, you know, satirical, certainly in secondary world, you you can't just have people flying on brooms now. Like it's it's no nobody's gonna buy that. Like you can like you can get away with that if you're doing secret magic on Earth. Like, but you can't do that in secondary world. Like it's one of those things. Unless you're, again, you're doing a Pratchett esque satire, you just. Yeah, you have to be very intentional. It makes me think of um, Hocus Pocus and the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> oh my god, yes. <laughs> I was thinking about how um, Philip Pullman in the His Dark Materials series gives it a slightly different twist in that they use pine branches. So it's not broom, but it's still sort of like they use a sp- like just holding a sprig of a pine branch allows them to fly. That flight thing is often a common element, though. I mean, don't we all want to fly? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just a matter of what you need to fly. Though in uh So, there's a movie from the late 80s called Warlock. I don't know if either of you have ever seen this movie. Oh, it is no. It is kind of it, it is a true delight of of 80s B movies. It starts Julian Sands as the Warlock and the the basic plot of it is he's He's a warlock from, you know, from Salem in the 1690s who manages to magic and escape through time to, you know, 1989 San Francisco. And, like, the witch hunter who caught him manages to, like, jump in the time portal at the same time and get... So then it's the two of them in modern world, you know, sort of having their own little, you know, war. And they drag this valley girl played by Laurie Singer into it as well. And, like, it's... Like you can tell, the whole budget was on getting the three main actors, and <laughs> <laughs> but I actually really kind of love it in this weird cheesy way. But like because you could tell whoever wrote it put a lot of thought into different things because like there's the point where the warlock makes his flying potion because you you know you need one ingredient to make a flying potion, and that's fat from an unbaptized boy. So when they find that this little boy has been killed, the witch hunter is immediately like goes up to the grieving mother and is like, "Was he baptized?" And the mother's like, "No." It's like, "Oh fuck!" Because <laughs> like, what was like? There's only one thing he would do if he's if he killed you know an unbaptized boy, and that's make a flying potion. <laughs> but that's that's one of those that's there's one of those rare movies that has a depiction of witchcraft, but with with a with a male character being the the one who is who is doing the witchcraft. I feel like we need to host some kind of like watch along for this. We need a viewing party at some point. 
It sounds like a brilliant <laughs> idea because I, I I don't know if it's streaming anywhere or not, but it's 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 it is a f- like you can tell the person who made it had love for what they were doing and put thought into it, but just did not have the money to 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 fully to fully see <laughs> to, their vision. to realize this vision. <laughs> I'm looking at the Wikipedia article now, and like between the summary and then it's like. Richard E. Grant was in this? Richard E. Grant is is the witch hunter. <laughs> and and the entire cast is like Warlock, Cassandra, Giles Redford, Chandler, Chaz, Mennonite, and gas station attendant. That's apparently it. That's all the people in this movie. That's pretty much it. <laughs> I mean, anytime you have Mennonite and gas station attendant sharing billing with a I'm warlock, I'm that's, sold. yeah, I'm you sold. know. The Mennonite is actually a big part of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> because there's where they're hunting the witch and they're like, because it's now the cross-country drive chasing him. And they just pass a bar that has this big, like, like cursed symbol on it. And he goes like, Okay, they're there. It's like you. There's a curse symbol on the barn, and the old, the one, the young farmer's like a curse symbol. Why? And this old man walks in. I put the curse symbol. We're cursed. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like because they knew he knew the witch was hiding in their land. <laughs> okay, it's a cheesy movie, but I love it so damn much. <laughs> I had it on VHS and watched it over and over and over. I just realized that this, this is also me showing the age difference between me and the two of you. Because when, when that movie came out, I was a teenager and you two were toddlers. What are you gonna Which do? is probably why I saw it many times and the two of you not so much because it definitely <laughs> did not maintain that i've of seen i've seen a lot of cachet. bad 80s movies though i, it, I so it, it's it's right in my wheelhouse i'll have to look it up it, it didn't maintain that sort of cultural cachet I, that like 15 years later people would be like oh we got to watch this now because this is a halloween episode and and there is a witch in this i will also mention however one of my favorite halloween flicks which is it's like a half hour special and it aired on the Disney Channel many, many years ago as part of a like Halloween night lineup, which my parents recorded. And so like we had it on eight millimeter tape um, for, for those who remember those <laughs> for a lot of years. And so I ended up watching it like every year. And it's something from the seventies called the Halloween that almost wasn't. And it is bonkers. It is the campiest thing to ever camp. It features Judd Hirsch as Dracula who has to convince the witch to fly over the moon on Halloween, otherwise Halloween won't happen. And it is so silly. I love it so stupid much. You can find it on YouTube. And I watch it every year, still, as an adult. It's like, I love this. This is my thing. I just love that somebody said, we need somebody to play Dracula. Is Judd Hirsch available? Because that's the guy I think we should get. <laughs> it's delightful because it's like, it's this weird mashup of satire and also genuineness. And it it shouldn't work, but for me it did at least. As so many things from the 70s were. Because there, there yeah. was this delightful batshit earnestness <laughs> to so many things in the 70s. Where it's like, we're doing something completely off the rails but but we mean it and mean it with love alright how do we bring that back around to our theme <laughs> how do we segue that back to something 
Uh, that's a very good yeah. question. We did sort of skip community aspect of witches and and like often to like we we will see the witch as the solitary figure, but there is also very commonly the trio um, mm-hmm. that uses the crone mother and maiden form, or if it's just you know three crones a lot of the time, or but there's often a trio like that's very common. I mean that's straight out of Macbeth. We have we have yeah. the, the trio and same with uh, in. Oh, Clash of the Titans with the with the the, the witches who have the one the three of them who have the oh, one yeah that's eye the so that that's we're back from the three fates right I mean they're they're almost the like the original yeah, and, witches in some ways well yeah and I I think a lot of the elements that we get that we ascribe to witches especially when we see them in a trio ties back to the three fates though I mean we will see a different group like the craft has four and makes a big point like. Yeah. And they're making a new craft movie, and I, I'm already I excited. I have seen the trailer, and I don't know. I can't. I can't decide if I actually want to. I don't know. But like, they made a thing about how they needed four for their group. Mm-hmm. So like, which is an uncommon number for for witchcraft too. Like, you usually see three or thirteen, but yeah, but not sometimes four. seven or nine. But sometimes yeah. seven or nine. Prime numbers are usually yeah. good, and and four is. <laughs> I feel like it, it's because it ties into that like directional elemental thing, which in a lot of fiction feels more wizardy than witchy. That mm. sort of like there is a scientific and, and mathematic process yes. to it. Though I can kind of see the element of like it's the, the nature element that this is tied to the natural yeah. world in some way, which feels kind of witchy too. Earth wind water fire although then sometimes you have groups of five where then the fifth is just like the mystery or the void or something like that or heart and then for their powers combined <laughs> captain planet is actually a witch in this essence i will it's it, no, it's a coven I mean, in a weird i way. mean it is a it is a coven they all have their they magic do. rings and and they they then summon their their familiar so you know, it is very nature based. <laughs> I, I, I think I, think, I feel like there's more spandex think... involved than most witch iterations, but that doesn't disqualify it by itself. No. See, I think Captain Planet takes the form you expect him to take, <clears throat> and for them in the '80s, they were looking for a superhero. In this is true. But like, over over history, took on many forms. <laughs> You know that fanfic probably exists somewhere, and I I'm not going to go digging so, for it, but... I'm not going to go digging for it, but I would put money that somebody out there has written, like... I would so love to, to know with certainty that there is, like, a Captain Planet in, like, ancient Egypt <laughs> fanfic out there. Like, that would... <sighs> and if there isn't, dear listener... It's now upon you <laughs> to make this happen. Make this witchy, beautiful Captain Planet fanfic <laughs> that you know you want. And on that incredibly frightening note, should we wish our listeners <laughs> a very happy Halloween? All the treats, yeah. none of the tricks. Maybe, maybe, maybe a little trick. A little trick. Maybe a little trick. A little trick. Yeah. yeah. 
Make a little trick. Have a little trick. Have a treat. Make a little trick. Have a little treat and make some magic. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on November 11th, where we'll be digging into some of the topics we've discussed in the past few episodes and putting it into practice as we world build live, adding in details of the world we've been building together. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a moment to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. <laughs>